Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. This week, we're resharing one of our listeners' favorite episodes from 2019. On January 6th, we'll be back with fresh episodes, including some big interviews that you don't want to miss. Stay safe and happy trails. Hey, everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. My name is Jeff, and today Matt and Jero and I are going to be talking about mountain bike wheels. And before we get started, I should introduce Jero. Jero's a new staff writer at Single Tracks. He's been writing for us for a long time. You've probably seen his articles under the byline Brian Jero, and we're stoked to have him joining us. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Jero. Yeah, thanks. I'm excited to uh, excited to get started. It should be cool. Yeah, wheels are a topic that we have addressed on the podcast, but it's been a few years. And the last time we did, we heard from Dustin from Southern Wheelworks, uh, where he talked about some wheel stuff, but we thought we'd kind of back it up this time and go over more of the basics about wheels, you know, just the, all the things you need to know and consider when you're shopping for new wheels or trying to maintain your wheels or all that good stuff. So let's start at like a super high level and talk about what's important when you design a set of mountain bike wheels. What are like the main considerations that you have when you're trying to think of like what makes a good mountain bike wheel? I mean, I guess if I was looking to buy, um, this would depend on where I'm at in my mountain bike career, I suppose also. When I was like when I was just starting out, I would look for probably something more affordable. And now as I've gotten into it a little bit more, kind of balancing like one of the performance aspects of the wheel how light is it does it come with decent hubs yeah how light how stiff those are kind of things that i look at a little bit more yeah what about you jero i mean when you think about a mountain bike wheel what is like what does it have to do it has to roll obviously but like what makes it unique from other wheels i guess so i guess another thing i would consider is uh, what i'm going to use the wheel for so i ride on a lot of really rocky trails with a bigger trail bike or enduro bike so i want to i want a wheel that's going to stay straight and true mm-hmm. as long as possible and going to be able to bang through all those rocks for quite a while yeah something that's going to take a beating so i'm looking for something pretty durable yeah and mountain bike wheels especially i mean there's a lot of yucky conditions that they're going to be put through so you're going to get like water and dirt and stuff and so yeah you need to have like the bearings that are going to last and they're well sealed up and everything and that's that durability piece and it's just like any other mountain bike component you know you got durability performance for wheels that means they need to roll efficiently right like you don't want it to be gummed up or anything like that and efficiency also is something you consider in terms of like the flexibility of the wheel. Like you don't want a lot of your energy going into the wheel deflecting, like when you're really mashing on the pedals. And then, you know, the, the thing that makes mountain bike gear expensive is the weight. Nobody wants to be pushing around a really heavy wheel. So 
the designers have to do everything they can to keep that wheel weight down, particularly rotational weight. I'm learning about this with uh, Pinewood Derby. I'm designing a Pinewood Derby car <laughs> with my son. And, oh, sweet. Yeah, and rotational weight apparently is a big thing. Like you sand down the little plastic wheels to like get them as light as possible. And it's the same thing with mountain bike wheels. And then, yeah, Jero too, you, you're going to say something about the, where the components are made and, and how they're assembled, right? What, how does that play into a good set of mountain bike wheels? Well, I've certainly had better luck with hand-built wheels uh, as opposed to machine-built wheels and also just wheels that are built to a really tight tolerance with the whole setup of the hub being designed around around tolerances that are going to last for a long time. You know, nothing's going to get baggy. The wheel's not going to wobble. You don't have to tighten presets all the time. So right. there's a lot of factors that go into that. But then additionally, just looking for, you know, maybe hubs that are built in the United States or built in the UK or, you know, somewhere where you can have the, have the wheels built to a specific spec that you're looking for. Yeah. Well, you live in Italy. You didn't say Italy. Do they not make good wheels there? (laughs) (laughs) There are a few wheel companies here, but none of them are very large. And it's it's, it's certainly easier to get hand-built wheels from a company like Chris King or Hope that are kind of the exact spec you're looking for for what you need. Yeah. Well, let's dive in and talk about the parts that make up a wheel set and kind of talk about some of the considerations for each part, explain maybe a little bit about how it works. That's important. So let's start at the edge of the wheel, the rim. What what does the rim do, Matt? I guess you can't have a complete wheel without spokes, hubs, or a rim, but yeah, I mean, a rim is basically the piece that's going to get you going on the bike. Yeah. And hold your tire on, because I guess it'd be pretty awful to ride on just a rim without a tire, too. Yeah. So rims are pretty important. But yeah, I mean, you're starting there, and then also considering whether you're going to go with a, a more tubeless-compatible rim also, and do you want to do tubeless or not, and then look at the B-type to see if that's really going to be the best setup for yeah. for tubeless, if that's something you're going to consider. Yeah, what, what does that mean when a rim is tubeless or tubeless-compatible? What does that have to do with on the rim itself? Well, the B designs have changed a lot over time also, right? It was that Mavic did UST like a long time ago originally and had, it was more of like a hooked bead, right? That mm-hmm. kind of held the tire into the rim. And now you're kind of seeing that go away a little bit or at least get a little bit more subtle with how the rim bead designs are. Yeah. And you also, I mean, the rim itself is going to have a lot of holes. Obviously the spokes are attached to the rim. And so you're going to need some kind of tape to seal up that side of the rim to make it tubeless. And there are a lot of different ways you can do that. These days, most wheels are going to come with the rims already taped up and tubeless ready. But if they're not, if you have an older set of wheels or a set of wheels that just didn't come that way for whatever reason, it is possible to do that yourself. Have you done that, Jero? Have you ever converted a wheel set and made it tubeless? Yeah, so at the beginning, uh, when I first started trying to set up tires tubeless, we would take a tube, blow it up, cut it down the middle, and then put a tire on, set it up tubeless, and cut out, cut off the remaining tube that was left over. That was kind of one of the first ways to set it up. And then switch to what I still do today, is just put a bunch of Gorilla Tape on there until it's tight and nice. and go for it. There are also rim manufacturers like Crank Brothers that make rims a little differently. They don't have any spoke holes 
Instead, they have built-in nipples that'll hold the spoke. Mm-hmm. And so you don't have to deal with covering the holes. It's just a solid surface inside. Yeah. And, and are these carbon rims or are there alloy rims that are that way too? I'm not sure if their carbon rims are set up that way. I've only had their alloy rims, but it's pretty convenient for sure. Cool. Yeah, you mentioned Gorilla Tape. One of the single tracks readers mentioned in the forums that they found the Gorilla Tape like breaks down over time. And he seemed to kind of hint that maybe it was something to do with the sealant. Have you ever had that problem with Gorilla Tape like just disintegrating? I have had a problem with it moving over time for sure. As, as the tire comes off and you switch tires eventually, you need to change the tape because it starts to push down in toward the center of the rim. And that's kind of where you need the tire to... You need to have space for the tire to go there so you can get it off and on. Right. Interesting. Definitely has to be swapped out. Yeah. And then, Matt, you're talking about the different rim profiles, like the hooked rim versus a hookless rim. Do either of you guys like have a good way to explain what that looks like? And I have a hard time even understanding how a hookless rim actually works. It seems like the tire would just slide right off, but somehow, somehow it doesn't, right? I mean, it seems like there's enough pressure in there now. And I mean, I guess it's easier to explain if you're talking about like a hooked rim to where the bead kind of hooks itself towards the inside of the rim. And then the, the bead on the tire is round all the way around the tire and is sort of pressurized under that hook so that it, I mean, that was, my guess is that was like the easiest way to design a tubeless seal at that time. Yeah. Yeah. And I believe for the hookless rims, they're making a taller rim wall so that the tire can't like there's just not a way for the tire to get over the the side of the rim. Ah, yeah, that makes sense. Interesting. So yeah, we kind of skipped over it, but what materials are generally used for rims? Obviously there's carbon these days, that's the more expensive option, but there are other options as well, right? For sure. I personally prefer alloy. I don't, I don't have to deal with worrying about it breaking quite as much. And when an alloy rim goes out of round, which means it kind of starts to turn into an egg shape, mm-hmm. you can bang it back out. So say if you're in an enduro race and you're only allowed to use one wheel for the whole race, uh, front and rear, and you get a big ding in your ring and you're not able to keep a tire on, you need to be able to pound that back out, which you can't do with a carbon wheel. Interesting. I guess the obvious advantage of a carbon rim over alloy would be that it's lighter weight, but I've also heard that it's a lot stiffer. And as a mountain biker, maybe that seems a little weird. You know, we spend a lot of money to make our bikes less stiff, right? Like adding suspension and stuff like that. Squishier. Yeah, squishier. But there is an advantage to having stiff wheels, right? Yeah, I mean, you're going to roll a lot faster, uh, take corners a little bit harder. That was one of the... Uh, I st- few years ago, I switched from a, a set of alloy rims to a set of NVs, and it was like, yeah, it was a, a crazy, crazy change to get used to just because they were so much stiffer and like mm. cut corners so much quicker than, than alloys did. <laughs> it was, yeah. yeah. For anybody that switches over from like alloy to carbon, it, it takes some getting used to. Yeah. And so I kind of touched on it earlier, but obviously they're going to be more efficient in terms of your pedaling. Like you're not going to, the wheels aren't going to be flexing at all when you're putting those pedaling forces in. And then it also does help with handling as well. You know, you're going to be much more precise with your wheels. They're not going to be mushy when you try to, you know, turn them one way or the other. They're going to instantly respond. And uh, a lot of people like that feel. But then, like you said, Jero, there are disadvantages with carbon that, you know, it's not really repairable. I'm curious, too, what the 
how things are changing in terms of stiffness between alloy and carbon rims now that lacing profiles are becoming more symmetrical. Hmm. Boost spacing front and rear. Right. Uh, you don't have one side of the wheel with drastically shorter spokes and the ability for it to flex more in one direction than the other. I'd be curious to ask some wheel designers how that's affecting rigidity. Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah, well, we'll talk about spokes and lacing stuff up next. Um, before we move on, are there any products that are designed to protect rims from uh, rock strikes? I mean, especially if you're investing in a set of carbon hoops, uh, they're they're pricey. You know, prices have come down a little bit. They used to be, you know, you're looking at spending $2,500 for a set of carbon wheels. Nowadays, you can, you can get a good set for 1500 But still, there's definitely that chance that you're going to damage them from rock strikes. So what is one of the ways that people are trying to combat that? Yeah, I mean, you can throw in a set of inserts now, like Cushcore, which I keep telling my buddy to do because he's got a set of carbon wheels and still runs his tires at like 40 PSI. <laughs> Just to protect the rim. Put an insert in, man. <laughs> like... But uh, yeah, those tire inserts are getting super popular now and um, a good way to kind of lower the concern about damaging a rim and run your tire pressures where they should be to get the benefits, you know, uh, low 20s or mid 20s and, and not worry about cracking a rim. Yeah. So it's definitely help. Have you had any experience with those, Drew? Yeah, I have. There's a, it seems to be a pretty wide variation of the way that they're made, but they're kind of like a, a flat strip or a round pool noodle looking thing. Yeah. And I've used both. I recently had one made by a small Italian company that's more the pool noodle style. <laughs> and that worked really well until it didn't. It started to soak up all of the sealant at some point, got enough punctures in it that it just wasn't wasn't working in terms of the tubeless setup anymore, but it was still protecting the rim. Yeah. And now I have one one of the flat ones from Cafe Latex that just zip ties together and sits between the tire and the rim. And it seems to be working really well. And it also doesn't seem to affect the lateral flex of the tire as much, which is nice. So maybe you, if you needed to, you could throw it in your front tire as well and not worry about it affecting traction as much. Yeah, I've tried some of them as well, some of the inserts. And yeah, they, they seem to work pretty well. And it takes a lot of the pressure off of me, I feel like, I feel like I ride a little bit more confidently and, you know, I'm not afraid of banging into stuff. You know, I, I just feel like I can ride a little bit faster and not have to worry about damaging my wheels at all. And, and also there are benefits obviously to the tire itself, you know, you're not going to get as many pinch flats or things like that. So there's definitely yeah. an advantage and not only that, a lot of these carbon rims these days have some sort of warranty on them. So I think that was something that kept people, kept adoption rates kind of low early on when, with carbon rims. You know, people were afraid that they were going to damage them and it's going to be this like catastrophic failure. And so most of the companies offer some sort of warranty, at least from like manufacturing defects, which is kind of bogus if you ask me. Because obviously, yeah, if, if they didn't make it right, then obviously they should take it back. But a lot of them extend to, you know, more normal damage. You know, if you have a rock strike or something, they're going to, a lot of times they're going to take care of you. So that's nice. Yeah. When I bought my NVs a few years ago, I, I bought them secondhand. So I saved a 
a lot of money, but I mean, there was still a lot. And then I ended up cracking the rear rim in an enduro race. Uh, I was like, great. I can't use the warranty at all because I'm not the original buyer. Right. But, uh, luckily there's a, uh, a couple of people that do carbon repair around here and help me get it patched back up. Nice. Are you still running those wheels? No, no. Yeah. I sold the, took the hubs off of Chris Kings and I I really like Chris Kings and, uh, (laughs) just, uh, yeah, I think like this dirt jumper guy bought them because they're 26. Oh, nice. That's cool. Maybe they're still going. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Especially on a dirt jump bike, that seems like that could potentially be kind of rough on a set of wheels. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's move on from the rim to the spokes. So obviously spokes connect your rim to your hub and, One of the things, you know, if you look at a set of wheels, it seems like the spokes are kind of like pushing up from the hub to the rim, if that makes sense. Um, But really there's tension on them, right? They're, they're actually kind of pulling on the, the rim itself, right? Yeah. That's a a pretty big design consideration. When I was uh, in Vermont last year, we visited a wheel builder and Jerry Shabbat who builds next wheels. And like that was a, a, really, really, that was probably the biggest consideration for him building a wheel is the spoke tension process. Mm-hmm. Cause he actually just uses, like he sends his own design to a, a Chinese carbon manufacturer. And so kind of get some flack from that, but he's like, well, that's like a minor part of it. And if you get the, the tension just the way you want it all the way around the wheel, then, I mean, that makes an even bigger difference in like the ride quality and in the, the ride feel of the wheel. Yeah. That's interesting. Well, what determines like the number of spokes that you use in a wheel? I mean, it seems like we're seeing spoke counts come down a lot. If you look at like a wheel from a long time ago, it's going to just, it's going to be full of spokes or or even like inexpensive wheel sets. They tend to have a lot more spokes. So what determines that number? How many you use? I think part of that is again, the use, what you're going to use the wheel for and what kind of bike it's going to be on. A lot of trail and enduro bikes have 32, 34-spoke wheels, whereas some cross-country wheels will be a lot lower. Mm-hmm. And there are also companies who are running three-cross-spoke patterns on one side of a wheel and then straight pole on the other side. So it's all, there's just seems to be endless options for engineers to choose from and di- all sorts of different reasons why they, they go with different patterns. Yeah. Yeah. Spoke lacing is one of those things that's really interesting to me, you know, the design consideration and there are all these different patterns. I mean, it's almost like a, like an art form. So what materials are people generally going to be using for spokes? As far as I know, they're, they're all steel for the most part. There's a few companies running alloy. Industry nine has got some alloy spokes and all kinds of really cool colors, but any wheel you're going to buy off the shelf is generally going to be steel. Yeah. Well, you, you just sent me yesterday a link to a set of carbon wheels, right? Where I guess they aren't spokes, they're blades when you make them out of carbon, right? But they're like the old Spinergy wheels, but those are still around, right? The Spinergy wheels are still around. Yeah. I think they might be using aluminum spokes. I'm not positive. And that set that, uh, that other set that I sent you was, uh, I guess we would call them mag wheels. The spangle wheels with the three different kind of big carbon blades. Yeah. Yeah, those things are cool. Yeah. They look a little scary in terms of getting sticks between those blades, but uh, 
Right. <laughs> right. Be cool to test out. Yeah. Well, at uh, Sea Otter last year, we saw the wheel set from Synchros, Scott Synchros, that the whole thing is carbon, you know, from the, the spokes. I don't know if they call them spokes, but the whole thing is like molded together, the rim and the spoke and basically the hub shell. So I guess kind of, you can kind of use carbon, but it's you can't just buy like loose carbon spokes or anything in case you're you're hoping to do that hoping to like upgrade your wheel set with carbon spokes are there advantages to we didn't really talk about it but there are basically different shapes of spokes and some are going to be bladed where they're kind of flat profile and then uh, the more common one is round spokes are there advantages to one shape or another the blades are super arrow yeah (laughs) (laughs) less wind resistance right i think also there's some bladed spokes that are quite a bit lighter oh right i think most brands their lightest spoke will be a bladed spoke and then they kind of go up from there to triple butted double butted spokes yeah and the bladed ones can be more like torsionally flexy right or flexible yeah that i don't know that's uh it's all part of the magic of wheel building that is <laughs> right. an amazing thing to learn about and equally difficult difficult to do. Yeah, one of the I had a wheel set that used bladed spokes and I don't know if they were like proprietary too. There just aren't as many of them out there. So it does make it harder when you need to like replace a spoke. You take it to your local bike shop and they're gonna have to order some of these spokes. And the other thing I found out is spokes you can't just buy like one spoke like even a bike shop can't and so some of the repairs i've had to do that you know the the shop comes back and they're like well we need to buy like five of these spokes and we need you to pay for them because like we don't have a use for these after you so that can be yeah that can be kind of a problem if you don't use standard sort of spoke profiles and spoke shapes and then the other thing to know about them too is they're all like different lengths and they attach to the rim in different ways. Matt, you're going to talk about J-bends, right? Like spokes that have a, a bend on them are a little bit different and their advantages to the shape on that, right? Yeah. And um, I mean, it's like the layup and how they, I mean, J-bends in a way will cross over each other maybe several times and support each other, kind of push against each other and tension the wheel. Mm-hmm. It makes it a little bit more difficult to actually swap the spoke if you need, but they actually do play a role in making a significant difference in actually tensioning the wheel. Yeah. And the other form is straight pull spokes. And those are basically, they're just completely straight, right, Drew? Yeah. The head of the spoke, there's usually like a seat that the spoke sits in inside the hub. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it's just a direct straight tension. I don't know. I, I know that they're lighter and sometimes hub manufacturers can make the hub a little lighter when they use straight pull. Hmm. Uh, I'm not sure about other advantages to them. Though. Interesting. And then finally, how are the spokes attached to the rim? Most companies either are using brass or alloy nipples, and the nipple length is specific to the spoke length, and, and you're kind of taking up the extra space between the rim and the hub with the nipple as well. Right. But all those measurements have to be pretty precise. Yeah. And then there are companies like Mavic that some of their wheels have a built-in nipple that the spoke goes into. Mm-hmm. And then you tension it from, I guess you tension it essentially the same way that you would a normal spoke. But again, there might not, in some of those wheels, there's there aren't holes on the inside to run the spoke through. So you run the spoke through the outside. Right. 
And those are all proprietary as well. Like you were saying, you if you need spare spokes, you're not going to find them just anywhere. Right. Um, you gotta you gotta have your own spokes with you. Yeah, and some of those can be pretty tricky, from what I understand. I wheels are like one thing that I do not work on myself. There are parts of them that you're supposed to be able to work on yourself. You know, like you can use a spoke wrench to like change the tension on spokes if you've got a little bit of a wobble, but. Yeah, I personally don't mess with that stuff. But what I understand is some of these new rim profiles, uh, like you were talking about, Jero, that there's no spoke hole on the inside. Uh, there, you know, it's basically like a sealed channel almost. And yeah. from what I understand, to attach the spokes in some cases, or if you have to replace one, you have to like drop the nipple inside and use a magnet to like bring it around to the right spot. And like, I don't know, it just sounds sounds crazy oh man yeah wow yeah there's somewhere the nipples even built into the rim oh right and so you're just threading directly into that but then again if that built-in proprietary nipple breaks you're you're kind of stuck yeah i wonder how difficult that is yeah do either of you guys know why brass i mean it, that seems to be the more common material that's used for nipples and that's as far as i know that's the only thing on a bike that is made out of brass is there any reason for that material that you guys know of? Yeah, when I've worked in shops in the past, uh, the folks that built wheels would say that it lasts a lot longer. You don't have to deal with the corrosion issues of aluminum. Right. Especially with getting sealant stuck inside the rim and then sitting on the head of this of the nipple. Mm. It can really corrode the, the top of it and then you end up breaking the nipple. So brass is not supposed to be as susceptible to those things. Hmm. Yeah. Is it a little heavier then or...? For sure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, why not just make bikes out of brass and all that? Right. <laughs> It'll last forever. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's exactly where my mind was going. But yeah, I bet a brass bike would be, would be pretty heavy. Like a brass bell. <laughs> yeah. And my grandma would go after it to add to her brass collection. <laughs> nice. All right. So now we're getting, we're getting to the core of the wheel, right in the middle, the hubs. So the hub obviously is the thing that holds everything together. All the spokes run into the hub. What are the differences between the front and the rear hub, Jero? The front hub is pretty basic. It's just, uh, it's got either a center lock or a six bolt to put a rotor on, mm -hmm. a couple of bearings and an axle, and usually that's it. Yeah. Whereas the rear will have all of that and then a free hub body, which is what the cassette goes onto and is tightened onto. And that has its own two or more larger bearings, sometimes a two-piece axle. And then some hubs, Chris King in particular, have different preload adjustments so that you can adjust how much tension goes on the bearings. And as the bearings seat in their place, you can tighten them a little more and different things like that. So there's, there's quite a few more elements to a rear hub. Right. When we talk about rear hubs, a lot of times, you know, one of the marketing stats, I guess, that you'll see from brands is the the engagement, the amount of engagement. What does that mean exactly, Matt? Yeah, so when you're talking about engagement, you're really talking about, I mean, how many of the paws on the inside of the rear hub are contacting like the ratchet mechanism, or mechanism, and then it comes down to a matter of degrees to where if you turn the wheel a certain amount of degrees, are those paws going to be making contact with the ratchet? So right. better hubs are going to have more smaller teeth and paw mechanisms and cheaper hubs are going to have bigger and less. So you're talking about having to turn the crank more to get it to engage with the rear hub. It's just 
less responsive than a higher uh, higher end hub with a lot more engagement. Yeah, that's a good way to explain it. That it's a, it is a ratcheting mechanism where you know it can turn in one direction, but then in the other direction it will not turn uh, because those those pawls, which are basically they're like little levers that are going to engage with a tooth uh, to kind of like backstop it. And so, yeah, the more of those that you have, the more engagement, more quickly the wheel's going to engage when you're ready to pedal. So it, what what advantage is there to high degree of engagement? I mean, beyond just, I mean, I guess, I guess it's simple, right? I guess the advantage is you can, you can get it to engage more quickly when you're ready to pedal. You know, the second you put that power down, it's going right into the wheel, right? Yeah, Drew and I were just chatting about this, I think, the other week. So we were complaining about OEM hubs and I mean, I guess we're just kind of like hub snobs now, but I mean, it makes a big difference, especially like totally if you're at speed and you're trying to pedal and pick up more speed, I mean, you really have to like crank down that much harder to get it to engage. And I like it for technical climbing too. And I'm kind of like repositioning my feet to get up rocks and stuff like that. Like I can get it to engage a little bit quicker. Yeah. Yeah. I would say for technical climbing, it seems to be, that seems to be the spot where it's most noticeable. You know, some kind of junky hubs if you coast at all you'll go to put power down on the pedal and get a quarter of a turn from your crank <laughs> before anything happens and yeah. by that time like the rock that was right in front of you stopped your tire and you fall over so it's, it can make a big difference in those situations yeah yeah i mean i like to imagine the advantages when you're in those like you're trying to do like trialsy moves you know where you're like on the pedals and like trying to balance and get like just the right pedal stroke at the right time. So you're not banging into a rock. I mean, I imagine like trials bikes, they must have crazy good engagement. I don't know. I haven't ridden one. And then we saw from industry nine, the news uh, recently was about their new hub, the Hydra. Yeah. It's got like a crazy amount of engagement. 690 points. Yeah. That's a lot of tiny little, little teeth basically inside that hub. Uh, they're working for you. So yeah. And, and what's interesting, I think, I feel like there's more advantage to having better engagement for mountain biking because of the reasons we said, you know, technical terrain and things demand that, that you're able to engage the wheel more responsibly maybe than road biking. Although I guess, I guess if you're racing or, you know, at a different level, maybe it comes in play as well. But I, I feel like for mountain biking, the amount of engagement is super important. For sure. I would imagine in cyclocross, it could be really helpful as well. Anytime you're riding in a lot of mud and you have to, you know, do some like kick stops and one footed pedaling and funny things like that. It's probably pretty helpful. So yeah, while we're talking about engagement, what, why are some hubs really buzzy and then others are not? I mean, they are, they're all using essentially the same mechanism with these teeth that are kind of going up and down inside the hub. Why, why are some louder than others? A big part of it is just to do with the engagement. I mean, you have more more points of engagement and more teeth in contact, then mm -hmm. uh, you're just going to get more of like a rapid fire sound than that doesn't have as as much engagement. Yeah, yeah. You can even make it louder if you want. <laughs> oh, yeah. You'd take the free hub off and clean all the grease out, and then just put a lighter grease in. It'll get louder. You can also take the springs that push against the poles and bend them so they push harder. Huh. Interesting. There's all kinds of little tricks like that. <laughs> and at the same time, you can quiet down by just adding yeah. some heavier grease. Interesting. That's something I always had problems with, I guess, sort of problems with on my Chris Kings is because, I mean, after a while, dirt builds up in there and, and you lose like a lot of the engagement. So with the Chris Kings that I had, like I 
at least like every few months I'd have to take out, re-grease them. And you could tell uh, because they'd start skipping engagement and then they would get a lot more quiet. And then hmm. you clean them out, put a new grease in and you get that, that angry bee sound back. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because each brand, especially the, the bigger, more well-known hub brands, tend to be known by their sound. I mean, a lot of people, I have Industry 9s on one of my bikes and oftentimes I'll be coasting by somebody and, and they'll be like, oh, Industry 9, like they, you know it just by sound. And I feel like yeah. companies do, it's almost like Harley Davidson, you know, I mean, they, they tune their motorcycles to have that Harley sound, you know, and I think Chris King was probably one of the first ones to do that. Um, I remember, remember many years ago, you know, it must've been 15 years ago. I first heard somebody rolling by with those on the trail and I thought, Oh man, something's wrong with their bike. Like it shouldn't be making <laughs> that much noise, but it's like, no, they, Chris King does that on, on purpose. Like that's how it's supposed to sound. And it's we've gotten signature. used to that. Yeah. That signature sound. And some people, they like a really buzzy hub. Some people don't. It's good to know you can tune that out. Um, but it's also good to know it's not, there's nothing wrong with it. It's okay for it to make that noise. Yeah, maybe at some point Shimano will have a hub that's uh, silent. We'll see. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's that's the promise. Yeah, none of them are completely silent that I've seen myself. But yeah, it seems like we're getting close. For sure. So let's talk a little bit about axle standards. So the axle obviously is the thing that goes through the middle of the hub and the thing that attaches to your frame. This is actually good timing because Jerome just wrote an article about uh, converting different axles and axle widths and diameters. Boosted hating. Yeah. So can most wheels be converted to work with like different axle sizes, like quick release or through axle and, and also like new standards like boost? Yeah. Most, most wheels can be converted from, from one standard to another. Maybe not a lot of them, not from quick release to boost mm-hmm. kind of depends on the wheel. Right. There are a few wheels that can pull that off. But most of them can go, say, from 142 by 12 in the rear to 148 mm-hmm. uh, with a couple of spacers either on one side uh, where you have to redish the wheel or on both sides. Is there an advantage to doing it one way or the other? Uh, you know, why wouldn't you just do the symmetrical one where it's a lot less work? I think the idea of doing the asymmetrical one is it adds those versions add a spacer to the non-drive side, mm-hmm. allowing you to have the same chain line that the frame was designed around. So if your frame is designed for a boost chain ring and a chain line for a boost hub, that puts your cog set over where it's going to line up properly oh, right. and your shifting will work, will function properly. Yeah. Interesting. And I know a lot of the older wheels, you know, the before boost, um, when we were kind of moving from quick release to through axles, I know a lot of the wheel sets would ship with like different end caps. So you could run quick release or you could run, you know, 15 millimeter, some even a 20. I think I've got some wheel sets that run the old 20 millimeter axle. So it just depends on your wheel set, I guess. I mean, there's no standard in terms of like how that goes together, right? Yeah, there doesn't seem to be a standard of future-proofing necessarily. You kind of get what comes with the wheel set. And if you get a new bike, sometimes you can make it work, and sometimes you have to swap out your hubs. Yeah, and in your research, it looks like you found some companies are addressing this more than others, right? There are some that, that they do 
design or they are designing their newer hubs so that they're expandable or changeable down the line if they need to be, right? Yeah, for sure. Hope and Spank are two that I found that the majority of, if not all of their hubs, you can change the end caps and switch things around and make them work for almost any bike. Yeah, that's good to know. So the hubs too, I mean, beyond just being like part of the wheel, they're also connected to your brakes and to your drivetrain. So there are different rotor mount standards. Matt, what are the the two rotor standards that people need to know about when they're choosing a wheel set or a hub? It, it's pretty much just six bolt or, or center lock. Um, the six bolts, just six little torque bolts around the rotor. Center lock is like, it's almost, uh, I'm not sure how to describe that design, but it's like a sprocket design essentially where you'd like slide the slide the rotor onto the hub and and then you have to get a special tool to actually like crank the the ring around the the lock crank the lock ring down yeah yeah right it's a lock ring versus six little torx bolts that attaches it on there and the tool that you use i always forget i don't most of my bikes that i use don't run center lock but it's uh is it the bottom bracket tool or it's it's a tool that you would use for other stuff or is it the the cassette tool? I think it's a center lock tool. Yeah, it depends. Uh, I have I have one bike, for example, where the front is a 200 millimeter rotor and it's center lock. And you use a bottom bracket tool for that one. And then the rear takes a cassette tool. So oh. it just kind of depends on the, on the lock ring, actually. Yeah, that's why I was confused. Because, yeah, I feel like I've done it both ways. And I was like, wait, yeah. which one is it? Yeah, yeah I haven't used center lock much at all yeah and that's that's shimano right are all shimano rotors center lock or do they have some of both they have six bolt too right yeah they have six bolt as well i think it's a dt swiss that really pushes center lock more than anyone else Hmm. and xtr is for sure all center lock but yeah everything else you can get six bolt yeah interesting so yeah that's definitely something to check when you're getting a new wheel set are your brakes going to work with it? And do you need to get a, get a new tool? So also drivetrain. So when we're talking about the rear wheel we kind of touched on it when we're talking about chain line and things like that, but yeah, how, what are the drivetrain considerations when you're looking at a rear hub? So one consideration is that often on boost frames, your chain stays are further apart. And so you have to use, you might have to use a boost chain ring or or crank set. Mm-hmm. So for example, I have a crank set from rotor that has a boost. Instead of having a boost chain ring, it uses a boost axle that's a bit wider. Okay. So that just space it out so that it doesn't, the chain ring doesn't hit the chain stay. Yeah. And then you also, the, the big one that I know I've run into before when, when looking at drivetrain stuff is the driver bodies. So you have either the standard splined driver body, uh, which is a standard, I guess, created by Shimano. I don't know, popularized, who knows? Um, but it's the one that, that wheels used for a very long time. And then when SRAM came out with 11 speed drivetrains, they introduced what was known as the XD driver, uh, which only works with these SRAM cassettes that are XD compatible. And so generally that, that involves, I mean, most times it involves getting a new hub set, right? It's not easy to just change out the driver body on a on a hub, is it? No, it's it, yeah, it can be a pretty expensive process to do that. Also, 
Yeah, that one kind of depends on the hub manufacturer. Sometimes you can switch between, I think the Shimano one's called an HG driver. Okay. Not positive on that. And then the SRAM XD sometimes can just be swapped out. And uh, I know on a Hope Hub I have, you can even just pull it off by hand and put the other one on. Yeah. They're not, I mean, the, the drivers are not inexpensive. They're anywhere from 60 to to $100. But. Oh, wow. But yeah, I mean, it, it is good to see manufacturers thinking about that in terms of the design, making parts swappable, because there are so many different standards these days um, in terms of spacing and driver bodies and all that stuff. And it's tough when you spend a lot of money on a good set of wheels to have to toss them out or rebuild them, you know, like completely take the wheel apart just to like put a different hub in it. Yeah. That was a, a problem I had with the Chris Kings cause I was trying to set it up with a, I think a SRAM cassette and the Chris Kings are made to work with Shimano, like engineered to work with Shimano drivers. And so like to buy an XD driver for a Chris King hub is like a few hundred bucks. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. They're, they're pricey. <laughs> Yeah, one of the other things when it comes to hubs, too, that you can get is a Dynamo hub. And this is something that bike packers like to use. You know, it's basically it's a little generator that goes inside the hub. And obviously, it, it makes the hub a lot heavier um, because there's all kinds of copper wiring inside there and everything. But what it allows you to do is the power like a light or charge your phone or whatever you need. Uh, while you're rolling on the bike. And so that's a popular option. It's, they're generally pretty expensive. I want to say $500 or more for one of those, but it could be a good thing if you're building up a set of wheels, it could be a good thing to to throw in there. It is going to add a little bit of resistance when you're drawing power from it. So that is a consideration. And And it's always, as far as I know, it's always in the front that you could put a dynamo hub Uh, not in the rear. And then one other thing, there are geared hubs as well, right? Roloff is one of the main ones that people know where basically there's, there's a drivetrain inside the hub, which gives your bike a a much cleaner chain line and, and look to it and everything. Everything is like sealed up inside and those things are mega heavy. Uh, but they are they are pretty cool, pretty interesting engineering. Yeah, they seem like they'd be really nice for folks who ride a lot in the mud or mm-hmm. just generally live somewhere where the weather's not great. Yeah. Not have to deal with their drivetrain cleaning all the time. Yeah, they do. What I've found, I've only spent limited time trying these geared hubs out, but they do change the handling of the bike. You know, it puts a lot more weight on the hub, and so... I don't know if that's a, I don't know if it's necessarily a good or a bad thing, but it is something that riders I'm sure have to get used to and kind of adjust uh, how they handle on the bike. Well, we're going to take a break real quick, but when we come back, we're going to talk about mountain bike wheel diameters, rim widths, and we'll also offer some tips for troubleshooting your mountain bike wheels. Stay tuned. Join single tracks at Mulberry Gap in North Georgia, March 23rd through 24th, 2019 for our annual get together, the Ride and Rally. We designed this event so that mountain bikers at all levels can ride new trails, try new bikes, learn new skills and make new friends. Registration includes access to mini skills clinics by Ninja Mountain Bike Performance, food and shuttles from Mulberry Gap, Sweetwater Beer, specialized demo bikes and commemorative swag. And the event benefits the North Georgia Mountain Bike Association. 
The ride and rally is limited to 74 riders, and lodging at Mulberry Gap will fill up quickly, so sign up today. Go to singletracks.com RNR to register for one or both days of the ride and rally. That's singletracks.com RNR. See you there. And we're back. So we've gone this entire episode talking about mountain bike wheels, and I don't think we've said anything about wheel diameters, which is kind of awesome because it's like that was the conversation for, I don't know, years and years. I mean, 10 years, probably, honestly, like I think I got my first 29er 10 years ago and, and they had been out for a while then even. So this is, this is a long time. Uh, that wheel diameter has been a thing. So is one wheel size better than another when it comes to mountain biking? In short, I'm going to say no. <laughs> <laughs> I think it, I think it comes down to preference. Spending like a lot of time on, I have like 227 bikes upstairs right now, and then still have like a lot of 29ers coming in for review. And I, I still see the benefits in both. Yeah. I rode the first 27.5 bike that I've ever spent any real amount of time on uh, just this winter, mm-hmm. uh, riding the GT Force. And I'd always kind of assumed that it doesn't matter. I would just get used to whatever wheel size mm-hmm. I'm riding, and I would, might I might ride a little differently, but I'm not really going to notice it much after a while. And I still believe that after riding this bike, it, it doesn't matter that much to me. I think I have to, in really rough sections... I might have to hop the bike around a little bit more and do a, you know, plow the line a little bit less than I would on a 29er, but you have to ride every bike a little differently. And I don't feel like the wheel size is maybe the biggest factor in this bike. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely one of those things you don't want to like stress too much about, like if you're going to pick the right one or the wrong one when it comes to wheel diameter. But in my opinion, I, I just want to pick one and stick with it, you know, just to keep things simple in terms of like tires and, you know, spare tubes and wheel sets and like all that stuff. So yeah, you're not going to be wrong if you pick 27.5 or you pick 29 or even 26, just stick with whatever you pick. That's my advice, I guess. Yeah, that's exactly why I've always ridden 29ers. I already had the wheels, I had spare tires, I didn't want to spend all the money to change all that over. Yeah. I mean, I guess people are afraid and there's that risk that one of these is just going to disappear. You know, I mean, 26 has kind of done that. I mean, it's, it's still there and it always will be, I'm sure, but it is finally getting harder to find, you know, every latest and greatest wheel in a 26 inch diameter. But yeah, it seems unlikely that that's going to happen to, either the 27.5 or the 29er size. Yeah. And there's new tire versions that are coming out that just don't, they don't have 26 inch options. For sure. There are also some tires you can't get in a 29. It's, uh, it's not as common, but it's, it seems a little strange that, I don't know, I guess some tread patterns must just work better specifically for 27.5 or 29. I'm, I'm not sure why that is. Or the companies are just saving up their money to make a new mold for the wheel, right? Like, yeah, a lot of them, they'll come out with just one diameter initially uh, because it is expensive to have multiple molds for each diameter. And so, yeah, it seems like over time, eventually you're going to, you're going to have it available. 
but it also depends on who's buying, you know, if a, if a tire is not selling well or whatever, who knows how all those decisions work. So speaking of tires, one of the things I forgot to ask and talk about was rim width. Uh, how does that relate to tires specifically? It seems like these days we are talking a lot less about uh, rim diameter, but we're starting to talk about the rim width, which is actually, um, you know, if you, if you stand a wheel up and you measure like from side to side of the rim, there's a lot of variation in that now, right? So how does that affect tire performance rims seem to have gone a little bit wider even for xc to where maybe back in the day like downhill was like a, a, a downhill rim was like 25 millimeters and now you're seeing xc racers run 25 millimeter widths mm-hmm. enduro riding has definitely gone up and yeah it, it just expands the tire a little bit more you get more traction easier to turn i think it makes a huge difference yeah it kind of squares off the tire profile and gets the shoulder knobs closer to the ground so you don't have to lean the bike over quite as far to get it to hook up on the big knobs when you're in a turn right well do you guys think that the rim widths are increasing so that people can run bigger tires or is it just so they can get better performance out of the same size tires they were running before there's definitely wider options out there now yeah like two six two point six inch have gotten like tremendously popular and i mean santa cruz even you you can buy uh, a bronson with like 2.6 inch Mm -hmm. front and back um as an option or you can just do like a a 2.4 and 2.5 as a tire option also but i mean that's kind of how big 2.6 has gotten is now you can buy a complete bike that comes standard with 2.6 like front and rear because people enjoy running that width yeah and i mean it should go without saying but the wider the tire that you run, the the wider the rim is going to need to be. You know, if you go all the way to the limit and look at like fat bike tires with like a five inch wide tire, you're looking at rims that are 80, 100 millimeters wide, which is crazy. So, so there is that correlation between the tire width and the rim width. And you don't want to get either of those two too far out of whack. You know, if you try to put a five inch tire on a regular mountain bike rim it's not gonna work <laughs> to flop over yeah. And burns yeah. and there's probably not even room for the bead right yeah i would like to see that though we should try that take a picture put it on instagram <laughs> put it on a road bike yeah so real quickly i want to just talk about wheel troubleshooting and repair so if if people are having issues with their wheel they can kind of diagnose it and figure out what to do next so wobble like if you spin your your wheel and you notice the thing is kind of wobbling side to side or doesn't look straight what does that what does that usually mean and what do you need to do to fix it so it could mean that you have a loose spoke on one side or your wheel is coming out around which is loosening one of your spokes because um, as the wheel starts to look more like an egg the spokes in certain parts will be shorter and looser now or not shorter but they'll be loose yeah Anyhow, if you just have an average wobble, you can often tighten the spoke on the opposite side and pull your rim toward that direction and straighten it back out. Yeah. And sometimes it can, it can be your tire too. You know, if you notice that you have that wobble, like don't assume that, oh my gosh, it's something bad. Like I'm gonna have to get a new wheel or even, even have to mess with spokes if you're not real comfortable with that. A lot of times it can be the tire, like the tire itself could have a bubble in it or the tube or whatever. So there's a lot of stuff it could be. So I don't know. I usually start with the tire for me, honestly, like that seems to be the thing that 
that's going to break first or that's going to cause a wobble. What about a wheel that's slow spinning? Like it seems like it's grinding or like you, you hold up, let's say the front end and you spin the wheel and it, it just slows down really quickly. Doesn't keep going. What do you, what is that going to mean? For me, I would like, I always check to see if the brake pads are contacting the rotor initially, but it also could just be your hub bearings. Maybe the, uh, the cones are too tight or maybe your bearings are shot and you need to, need to get some new ones. Yeah. Jero, you just shared a good article about how to replace the bearings in your front wheel. It actually, it didn't look too bad, that process. Yeah, it's pretty straight ahead. Uh, it requires a couple of specific tools you can either make with stuff from the hardware store or you can buy um, some bearing drifts so that you can make sure things go in straight and the pressure is all applied in the right place so you don't mess up the hub. Right. Some other things that can happen to cause a wheel to spin slowly is your bearing preload can be too tight. So on the hubs that have that setting, you might want to check that as well. And also with brand new wheels, uh, sometimes things just need to break in. Some, some wheels have really heavy bearing grease, and so they'll spin a little slower at first, but eventually they'll break in and spin a lot faster. Yeah, cool. And then what about if you're having trouble seating a tire in a wheel, I know we've all been there before struggled. Like, why won't this tire go in this rim? Are there things that could be wrong with the rim or is it usually the tire? What have you guys found? Uh, I mean, it definitely could be the, could be the tire. It's just, I messed around with like some downhill tires last, uh, last year. And just because the sidewalls are so thick, uh, it takes like a whole lot of pressure to actually get them to push out to the bead. And sometimes like the rim channel designs, um, like stands makes theirs really easy to where it's like just a really shallow, uh, rim channel that makes it easier for a tire to push out and, and sort of seat tubeless. Yeah. And sometimes there's also the issue of a tire being too old and kind of baggy and they just won't get tight enough and you can try adding another layer of tape to the rim. Sometimes that'll take care of it and you'll be able to get a little more life out of the tire, but sometimes you just need a new tire. Yeah. What about like chips and things like that, especially, I don't know, with carbon or I, you can get dings in your alloy rims as well. Does that affect the tire? Like how it's going to seat in there? I guess you could, you could be losing pressure for one thing. Like if it's, there's like a little nick in the rim. Um, and also again, yeah, you're going to have a hard time getting the bead to seat in there. Yeah. I've definitely had to put my rim in a vise before and kind of straighten out the, uh, the edges of it to get it to where the tire would hook up with it again. There's a whole podcast worth of tricks on how to try, how to try and make that work. But, uh, <laughs> it's usually possible unless, I mean, when the rim's cooked, you'll know it, but if it's just a little ding. You can probably fix it. Good to know. All right. Well, I think that's been a pretty comprehensive explanation and overview of how mountain bike wheels work. If you have specific questions about working on your bike or, trying to troubleshoot a wheel set or really any part of your bike, we'd love to hear your questions. Feel free to post them on the Single Tracks forums. Uh, you can hit us up over email. I'm Jeff at Singletracks. We got Matt at Singletracks.com and Jero at Singletracks.com, G-E-R-O-W. And yeah, send us your questions and then maybe we can do a whole episode where we answer some of your repair questions or questions about how stuff works on the bike. And if you're enjoying the Single Tracks podcast, we'd love to have you rate us online and 
that'll help other people find the Single Tracks podcast as well.